So um, you'll notice in your bulletins, there's a blank page. There's no prep notes on that page. Uh, I want you guys to have plenty of room to write down whatever comes to your heart um, throughout this teaching. But I do want to instruct the first thing. The first thing, if you want to write anything down, is the title of today's message, which is Remembering God's Grace. Remembering God's Grace. Before we go deep into this, I just want to say how blessed we are as a church to show up any given Sunday and uh, to be blessed with the Bible, not only taught, but prayed over in the music we sing. It has been soothing to my soul to be here this morning, to pray with you all, to sing with you all, and to see God's glory shine in this place. So I want to talk about grace today, Um, how wonderful the music is, all about God's grace, all about remembering God, remember the Lord your God, grace, this graciousness of God. You know, in coming to know the Lord and uh, spending the last so many years uh, studying His Word and being in fellowship with my brothers and sisters in the Lord, I, I often ponder this grace that we hear about all the time. I mean, every song this morning was grace. Christie's um, corporate prayer was about grace. And you can open up your, your Bible and If they didn't name this Bible, it could have been named Grace, because that's all that this book is about, is grace. Sometimes we read it and we're like, oh, man, that's some pretty hard stuff to read, isn't it? God opening up the earth and swallowing people. That's tough. That's not easy. Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed. That's not easy stuff to read about. And you know these songs, these, these amazing songs that we sung today, you know, what glorious mystery you are. I find it to be amazing that though he is a glorious mystery, he allows us to peer into him just enough so that we can have hope. Because when we read these things about the Bible that's in the Bible, the history of man, we get to see the history of the plan of redemption of our God, which is displayed in grace through Christ dying on the cross. We get to see that. Wolf preached last week about though they have eyes, they don't see. Though they have ears, they don't hear. Those of you here today, for the most part, have eyes and ears to see and to hear these things of God. And so I just find it to be wonderful that we get to come together and talk about this grace. So now let me get on to my script. So with grace, can anybody here grasp it? Can you grab hold of this grace? If you think you can, then you have the wrong grace. You're thinking of the wrong thing. God's grace is immeasurable. 
It's eternal and infinite. As far as the east is from the west, God's grace. When I deserved to be destroyed, he rebuilt me. When I deserved to be condemned, he pardoned me. When I deserved to be rejected, he adopted me. When I was hungry and thirsty, he fed me and gave me something to drink. I hope this is true for all of you. I hope that you see this. I did not come to a knowledge of God on my own. We know that the Bible says these things are foolish to the natural man. So how can the natural man understand what's in this book unless he first becomes a spiritual man? Who on this world can make themselves spiritual? Who? Who laid the foundations? That's who. God is full of grace and truth. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. How wonderful are the riches of his grace, this mystery. Now to go a little bit further, it's important to understand that this grace, we're going to talk a lot about this today, is unmerited favor. This unmerited favor, this undeserved favor of God is displayed by the Lord toward mankind and reveals his merciful character. A common way of describing this grace is that a man finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. He finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. Favor as in he gets all that he needs from God. It is not something that he has earned. This is true for the Israelites back, way back when, and it's true for us today. Now, I want you to write down on your papers, if you want to, it's up to you. Under, I can't tell you what to do. Under, I can, but you don't have to listen. I have children, I know. That's a whole other story. Pray for my family, for real. Under, remember... God's grace, I want you to write down three things, because there's three things you need to know about God's grace. Number one, there is a past grace. Number two, there is a present grace. And number three, there is a future grace. It's not enough that we remember God's past grace, but we can recall and ponder his present grace as well as that future grace that is promised to come to each of us. You see, in, this, in his past grace, God promised the Israelites, when the fires burn, they will not catch you ablaze. When the rivers flood, they will not drown you. I am the Lord, and I am with you forever and ever. Not just forever, but forever and ever. Eternally, I am with you. Our God, I might repeat this later, is infinitely high but he is also infinitely near his people. So in our passage today, Isaiah 43, 22, beginning at verse 22, going to Isaiah 44, ending in verse 23, God picks up, well, I pick up where we left off. God continued. He did not end because he's the beginning and the end. Alpha, Omega. Omega. We pick up, God talks to the people of Israel and says, 
in so many words, I am the Lord who did this for you. I did these things. I healed you. I brought water to your lands. I freed you from the land of Egypt. And I'm going to free you. See, there's that future grace. I'm going to free you from the land of Babylon. As we're talking, as we're, we're here today, think about what future graces you can recall that God has promised. And though I've done all this for you, I did it, God. I did these things for you, yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob. Beginning at verse 22, my apologies. But you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. Now, if you were just picking up the Bible for the first time and you opened it up to Isaiah 43, 22-24, you would read there, here's these people that God is saying, these are my people, I've called them. All right? And you could pick up a few things about these people. For one, they're not sacrificing to God. They're not coming to church, they're not praying, they're not serving the poor, they're not giving their sacrifices. Thankfully, hopefully, many of us here and online have not opened up the Bible for the first time today and turned to Isaiah 43. We very well know that the people of God were good at sacrificing. They did it all the time. They prayed all the time. They went to temple all the time. They wore the right clothes. They ate the right foods. They avoided all the immoralities. So why in the world does Scripture say, you did not call upon me? You have not brought me your sheep. There's a very important part here. Okay? Whenever there's a long verse, or a preacher, or a teacher wants to, or a regular student of God's Word, wants to break up a verse, you'll see 23a or 23b. A is the first half of the verse. So, the first half of 23, it says, you have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings. But then it says, or honored me with your sacrifices. He, he's acknowledging you have sacrificed to me, but you didn't honor me in them. You did not honor me with your sacrifices. digital. I'll get there. So remember the prophet Isaiah prophesied between the years of 740 BC and 701 BC. The temple was built by Solomon in 957 BC. After the temple was built, they put the altar in the temple and they dedicated the temple. They celebrated the building of the temple and they made sacrifices inside that temple. 1 Kings 8.13, Solomon says, I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. It's important to remember that Solomon also knew that God could not dwell in the walls of man. He acknowledges it later on in 1 Kings. 
See, the charge against the people are not that they did not sacrifice or neglect to do so. The charge is in what their motive was behind the sacrifice. Why did they do the things that they did? In reality, they did it for the wrong reasons. They reluctantly worshipped God. And what does God say? Isaiah 115. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, again, acknowledging these people do pray all the time. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. What we're seeing here is a difference between two types of worship. One is the type of worship that comes from a heart of I have to. The other is the type of worship that comes from the heart of I get to. Everybody write I get to on your paper. I get to. We either feel like we have to worship God or we feel like we get to worship God. This morning, you either have to or you get to. That's between you and God. I'm just saying the words. You're either having to worship or you're getting to worship. The heart behind I have to says, in order to find favor with God, I have to pray. I have to tithe. I have to devote my time every morning to the Lord. I have to Bible study. Now listen, what I'm not saying is we don't have to do these things. What I'm saying is we get to do them <laughs> on account of what He has done for us. We get to serve the Lord and worship Him in these ways. The heart behind the I get to recognizes that God's favor was given to them while they were yet sinners, that though they deserved judgment, they were given pardon. We get to honor the Lord. The heart of I have to turns piety into something transactional, like putting your debit card in an ATM machine and putting your code in and getting the money out. It's like praying to God and saying, okay, God, I'm doing this thing, now what? What am I getting? That's the heart of I have to. This heart is self-idolatrous. We'll talk about idolatry later when we talk about wooden objects. And though we can sit here and, and say, well, I, I, I glorify God, I honor God because I get to. We ought to be cautious. This is the warning. We can go from an I get to attitude to I have to attitude in a snap of a finger. Has anybody here done that? I have. I can go from I get to to I have to in a quick beat, real quick. Because I want the glory. I want the praise. And I forget. I'm breathing because of God. The very breath in my lungs comes from God. I'm standing on this stage today, not because I came in here and stood on the stage, because God allows me to be here. I didn't do this. You are not here on your own accord. You are here by the mighty right hand of God. It's a whole different perspective that has to be adopted in the mind of His people. So, when we say... 
I want, if I want to find favor in the Lord, I have to come to church, I have to pray, I have to tithe, I have to give these sacrifices. I want to ask you, what happens when a child walks away from the Lord? What happens when bills aren't getting paid or a relationship doesn't work out? What happens when you're feeling lonely, destitute? What happens when you get bad grades in school and your health goes crappy? What happens? The I have to says, I've done something wrong. Now, cause and effect, we know that if you drive your car and you're going 50 miles over the speed limit and a cop's there, you're going to get pulled over and get a ticket, right? Like, we know that we can, we can rationalize cause and effect. What I'm getting at is, don't you ever blame that on God. We can never say, because I didn't go to church, because I didn't teach enough, these things are happening in my life. Because who does that make an object of the worship? Who becomes the object of worship in that scenario? The self. The self does. The man who holds up the wooden statue takes pride in that statue. He made it. Remember the Lord your God. Write that down next to I get to or somewhere in that area. We want to talk about how do we transition from an I have to spirit of worshiping God to an I get to. And it starts with Remembering the Lord your God. Remember him. Isaiah 43, 25 through 28. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case, that you may be proved right. Your first father sinned, and your, father, and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. In the world of accounting, the act of blotting out on a, on a, uh, a ledger or a record is the act of canceling or mark, marking off somebody's debt, saying that, okay, this person has paid their debt in full. Okay? God is the one who blots out our debts. This forgiveness of our debt is only by God's grace. Remember, it's nothing that we have done. It is unmerited favor. God's grace was extended to the Israelites long before they were ever born. So our God blots out our sins, and he does this on account of his righteousness, not our own. Well, not ours, because we have none. For all of us are unrighteous, having all sinned and fallen short of the glory it's important to see here that he starts with saying, I am he who blots out your transgressions. I am he, he says. I am the one who blots out your sins. I am the one who forgives them. I am the one that remembers them no more. Then he gives a little challenge. Let's argue together, as if to say, prove to me that it's not me. Prove to me that you can save yourself, that it's you who did these wonderful things. But before he gives us a chance to answer, he first takes us to the history. He reminds us of something. Your father has sinned, and your mediators transgressed against me. 
He reminds us that from the beginning of the time, beginning, the beginning of time, the father of mankind, the father, the first father, Adam, sinned. And since then, everybody else has sinned against God. Everybody. What's it, Jason? Everybody. Everybody. Everybody has sinned. It's important here to notice this. This is a key here. And your mediators. There is no class of people that is immune to sin. From the poorest of poor to the richest of rich, to the lowliest in position to the highest in position, every man has sinned. I have a list of a few people that I was going to mention that have sinned. It all begins with your spouse, your children, your bosses, uh, your pastors, your teachers, your politicians. John Calvin is a sinner. (laughs) Mary Teresa was a sinner. They're all sinners. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory. But God, in His righteousness, in His highest of highs, made a plan. He made a way. Since the beginning of time, before the fall of man, He he made it so that He would make a way for His people. God is infinitely high and infinitely near. He is concerned and jealous for all of the details of Israel's life. He is concerned and jealous for all of the details of your life. The psalmist says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. How does he do this? Ezekiel says it. Here's God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. Sometime last year, you know, memory time goes by, you just forget. I remember preaching about these I will statements. (laughs) There's nothing more concrete than God saying, I will. He doesn't even justify it, like how he will. He just says, I will. We come up with all these little scenarios, like, I will, through this guy who was in my life five years ago, and here and here, and we try to backtrack these miracles and blessings that God has given us in our life. And it's easy. God did it. God will. God says, I will seek the lost, I will bring back the strayed, I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. When we see this, we find assurance. There's assurance in these words. There's assurance found in God. This is how we go from an I have to to an I get to. We get to worship in full assurance that our God is able. But he's also willing. He will because he promised. Continuing on, Isaiah 44, verses 1 through 2. But now, so here's something. In the ESV it says, but now here. 
in the King James and the New King James, it says yet. So I find it interesting that we begin our passage at verse 22 of 43 saying, yet you did not call. And it transitions again here in, in chapter 44, yet now hear. So here's God saying, I did all these things. It's not account of your works. You didn't do it. All that you have done is sinned. I will blot out your sins, all of your transgressions. I will forget them all. And then he says, Yet now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. He says in here, you sinned against me. You worship me in vain, looking to receive rather than to give, looking to ask rather than to be filled with thanksgiving, yet I will save you. Regardless, I'm going to save you regardless, because I have, in there, we see it twice, I have chosen you. You have been chosen, God says to Israelite. You have been chosen, I say to you. On behalf of God, you have been chosen. But I will provide you with this salvation because I am holy, I am righteous, I am just, forgiving, gracious, kind, and merciful. Jesus says in John fifteen sixteen, I chose you, you did not choose me. But just in case you're tempted to find one more way in which you have contributed to your own life, just in case you're tempted to find ways in which you secured your own salvation, he adds something else. He just adds in there, I formed you in the womb. What are you going to say now? You know, it's like, he's going to so many levels to show us, like, no matter how hard you try, you will never find a way that you have earned my grace. Did you put yourself in the womb? Anybody here? You just popped on in there and was like, I'm going to come to earth now. Nobody. He, put, he formed us in the womb. He begins with, I chose you, and then he ends with, I formed you. Isaiah 44, 33-5, For I will pour water on the thirsty land. After God... As a, not as a result, but God chose us. And when he chose us, he had blessings in mind. He had something in mind. And this is what it was. That he would pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. He would pour his spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. You see, God doesn't just choose one person and say goodbye to the others. He chose these people and their children and their children's children so that the, the, the descendants of Abraham would be as numerous as the stars or the grains of the sand on the seashores. The psalmist, O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry air or as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the works of your hand. 
It's, it's beautiful the amount of times that David would go to the Lord in remembrance. The waters and the streams here in the passage are referring to God's Spirit. It is in and through and by the Spirit of God that life is created and sustained. Those once dry and burnt-up lands become life-giving pastures. <laughs> the hearts that were once made of stone are softened, and in fact, the Scriptures go even further and say, God says, I will remove the heart of stone. He just completely rips that sucker out and puts a new one in there. That's how much he loves. He takes the whole thing out and puts a new heart in there. When the Spirit of God is poured out, men and women are transformed. No doubts, no questions. They are made new, and they are cleansed with pure water. Not only does God renew the present land and people, but he multiplies his church through their descendants. Now remember, guys, our children do not become worshipers of God by our efforts. Now there are some things we are responsible for. We are responsible to raise our children up in the ways of the Lord. But I have to ask you, do you have to? Do you have to? Or do you get to? Do you have to raise your children up, up in the ways of the Lord, or do you get to? Do you have to honor your mother and father, or do you get to? The other day I was at Mesa Ridge High School, and you can, every kid says, I have to be at school. And you have to teach them. Like, we got to teach each other. You don't have to do anything. It's a choice. Now, are your choices determined by the external factors in your environment? Or are they determined by the internal? When I used to go to the jails in Idaho, I would be able to tell the men, and they understood this very well. I would ask them, how come when you're in prison you want to worship God, but as soon as you get out you go back to your old ways? Because only godly sorrow produces repentance, people. Only godly sorrow pr produces repentance. Worldly sorrow does not. That's why there's nothing we can do. We can build all the walls we want and put people inside those walls. We could take away people's food. We could spank our children. We could ground our children. We could fire that employee. We can do all that we can, and we cannot change anyone. You can't change a single person. God says, but I can. I put them in the womb. I chose this person or not. So what happens as a result of this wonderful glory and grace of God filling the lands with water? Isaiah 44, 4-5 says, They, the people that God has chosen, shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. Have you guys ever seen dried up grass or a dried up plant? How it just, you know, folds over. What would be a good word for that? It wither. It says right there. Wither. <laughs> Preach it. Wither. Okay. I love the participation. It withers. It just wilts. There's another one, right? Wilt. It just folds over, and there's no life in it, and it's kind of sad, you know? 
What purpose does that have? God says, when I come along and I put that new heart within you, all of a sudden you're going to spring up. Boom! At one point in time, I was a new believer, and I was like, "Woo! let's go! Let's get it! How many of you guys have seen that? Someone comes to, the, comes to Christ, and they're just like jumping up and down. They're so excited. I can see! Oh, amazing grace. Tiffany called me once when she was in Turkey, and she sang that song to me, and I, it blew me away how often we see people weeping from sadness when we hear that song, but when we sing that song, if we weep, it's because we're so filled with joy. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. I can see. That's what he says. He says, when I come to you, when I do the work, when you stop doing the work all by yourself, when I come to you and I do the work, like I've been planning, guess what's going to happen? It's going to work. That person's going to see. Because I'm God. Can't nobody stop me. Man, that should be a song. Rhyme. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. Flowing. Water that doesn't flow has bacteria. And nothing can grow. It just dies. There's no life in still water. It's got to be a stream of water. This grass is like, man, there's some good tasting water. It tastes good. Who here is going to drink the water of a swamp? Nobody? Or a plant? You're going to eat a plant in the swamps? He goes on, he says in 44, uh, four, um, I think I'm at verse uh, 2. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, the Lord's. He puts on his hand, the Lord's. You see, I got this wedding ring on here that says I'm married to Tiffany. This says Tiffany on my finger. But on my heart, let it be God. Let it be the Lord that's on my heart. I love you. But let the Lord be on my heart. Because without him, I'm a dead man. Without the Lord, we are wilted. Mm. but we write them on our hands and we, we write them on the walls. Let us be so infatuated with God. Like when we were children, looking at the girl that we liked or the boy that we liked, let us just think about God like this. Like, oh, I can't get enough. I want to sneak out of my house and go visit God. Can't get in trouble for that, I bet. Where were you? I went to church. <laughs> About my father's business? That's what Jesus said. Hey, that did actually happen. Where were you, Jesus? I must be about my father's business. Uh, have you ever heard good news like this? Something that was just so rich, you were just like, yeah. How about a dessert? You eat a dessert. You get that sweet taste. How long does that last? Anybody? How long does it taste? How many? Wolf said 37 seconds. Bill, how many seconds for you? He confers. 37 seconds. Jason says not long enough. Aubrey says amen. 
All right, let's stop because I don't want to forget anybody's name. As soon as you taste something good, within a moment's notice, guess what happens? It's gone. It's gone. Now you're looking for the next best thing. You're like, okay, where's the next dessert? That's why when you get paid, guess where you're going to go back afterwards? When you get paid, do you just walk away from the job like, I got my check, I'm out? What do you do? You go back to work, right? And if you don't go back to work, you don't get paid. See, this is where our I, our, I have to mentality comes from. We've got to reconcile this. We've got to have a right Christian biblical worldview. And so knowing this, God says, it isn't enough that I tell you I'm going to do all this for you and you're going to be withered and back up again. He says, now I have to go back and tell you who I am. You have to know who I am. We have to know who God is. So Isaiah 44, 6 through 8. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? He's setting up the stage, guys. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let this false God that you love so much, let them proclaim that they are like me. Let him declare it and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Fear not, nor be afraid. I mean, here's God. He's challenging us. He's saying, you guys, Israel, I'll say it, us, church, you go back and forth sometimes. You think you're doing something for me. And, and there's this works mentality that gets put into your mind. Don't forget you're a sinner. All you guys have sinned. You've done nothing but sin. I have done all this for you. Nevertheless, fear not. Don't be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? There is no rock. I know not any. Bill was talking to me the other day and mentioned that in the ESV, it's, there's this weird translation here where it's, it's there is no rock. But in, in, in the latest text, it's there is no other rock beside me. I know not any. There's something that's important to reveal here to you guys. God is all-powerful. He can crush all of us right now. He is the most powerful of powers. There is no other powers. He's the only power. He sustains, he upholds this whole creation. If he chose to, he could let go. And that's it, folks. Like, this is how powerful he is. Let me ask you a question. You're sitting here in church, and all of a sudden, you hear a rumble in the back room over there. You look back, and the United States Army's got a whole platoon of infantrymen rushing into this building, weapons high, screaming and yelling, shooting. What are y'all going to do? You're going to be afraid, right? There's going to be some startle in you, some fear, right? Now imagine that times infinity. That's how powerful our God is. God says, fear not. Do not be afraid. So it's important. It's not enough to know that God is powerful. 
we have to trust, we have to know that He's in our favor. You do not want to be in the hands of an angry God. Who wrote that book, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? Edwards? We are in the hands of a God who shows favor towards His people. He is in our defense. He is the one that removes all of our enemies from us. Isaiah 44, 9-20. This is where things get... There's humor here. I'm not always like the humorous type, but there's a lot of humor in these passages. Starting at verse 9, it goes all the way through verse 20. All who fashion idols are nothing. He doesn't only say the idols are nothing. He says all who fashion them are nothing. And the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Who does that? Who does that? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. He says here, take all these people who fashion false idols. Take them all. Bring them all together in one place. Remember, this is the powerful God of the universe. He says, bring them all together. Let's put them all to shame. On the top five list of religions, by size, Christianity is number one. That's a good thing. Following up is Islam, then Hinduism, Buddhism, and Shinto. Islam has 1.8 billion followers. Billion. Not million, 1.8 billion followers. To us, this is intimidating. That's a lot of people. No man can possibly come up against 1.8 million people, billion people. And thankfully, we don't have to. God will. God even says, bring it on. Like, bring them all. Let's go. I can handle it. So you put all those numbers together. 3.6 billion people fill the other nine of the ten top religions, and with a world population of 8 billion people. So there's 3.6 billion that fill these false religions. The world's population is 8 billion. We can say that half of the world's population are worshiping false gods. But when you consider that atheism is self-idolatry, 70% of the world's population is worshiping false gods. And God says, bring it on. Bring them all. I'll put them all to shame. How many self-identifying Christians believe that God's grace is something they can earn? We would love to say none. No Christian believes, right? No Christian believes that they can earn God's grace. Sadly, that's just not the case. I don't know why this happens to me, but I've been exposed to some guy. I'm not going to say the name. He's been out there preaching messages to to people, traveling the nation, preaching messages. He's written a book. I'll give you enough information. He's written a book called Crazy Grace or Crazy Faith. Crazy Faith. He says that 
we look and we want the houses and we want the cars and we want the jobs and we want this and we want that. But God says, that's crazy faith. First, you've got to have baby faith, he says. So he's preaching a message that in order for you to receive all these things that you want, you've got to start with baby faith. This stuff is rampant, church. It's everywhere. Works-based theology is nothing new in this world or this church. The reason I share that is I just want you guys to know that while we here at Hope Chapel have this wonderful blessing of getting a pure word preached, the messages and the songs are, are, are theologically sound, they are filtered, every sermon has at least one, two sets of eyes on it before it comes up here, that there are still people out there being choked out by false doctrines. Idolatry is a cancer of the heart, and the next passage teaches this foolishness. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with a strong arm. He becomes hungry, and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. Does anybody think God was hungry or thirsty after he created? No. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar in the rain. Excuse me. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god, lowercase g. Anytime you see lowercase g, it's talking about false gods. When you see capital G, it's God Almighty. And he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha! I am warm. <laughs> this is so humorous. Aha! I am warm. <laughs> I've eaten this cake. Aha! I am pleased. Now where's the rest of it? <laughs> oh, man. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a lowercase god, his idol and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me. I don't even want to repeat these words. He says to this false god, Deliver me, for you are my God. What this passage reveals is the foolishness of worshiping the gift over the giver. We can read this passage and separate ourselves pretty easily. Um, well, I sure am glad I'm not a fool like this guy. How stupid is this? How foolish. But remember, idolatry is the matter of the heart. Idolatry is the matter of a false view of God and a false view of self. For instance, God is righteous, I am not. God is holy, I am not. God is worthy of my praise, I am not worthy. So why do people believe that salvation, power, health, wealth are in material things? Why are they so foolish? 
because they don't have the eyes to see or the ears to hear. You see, I want to exhort you guys and encourage you. When you see the world outside and they're doing silly things or they're, they're committing heinous crimes, please remember the day when you were blind. Remember when you couldn't hear and God showed his grace to you. Remember that. Remember when you, when you want to scoff and mock and ridicule. It's one thing to point out the error of someone's ways. It's another thing to cause them to stumble. Just remember that. In the times when you want to hate, you don't want to forgive, remember that God gave you grace. When you didn't have the eyes to see. Who here was born seeing the truths of God? Please raise your hand. Who was born being able to hear the truths of Scripture and take them in and become a part of God's kingdom? None of us. So when we see everything going on around us, let's remember that. Let's just remember God's grace. Remember God's grace. We've talked a lot about this past grace. The past graces of God. There's so many present graces. Marriage. Parenting. Life. Opportunities. Second chances. And for guys like me, a million. <laughs> I need all the chances I can get. We have opportunities. We have breath in our lungs. A roof over our head, both at home and at church. His ears are open, but he does not hear. And that becomes clear in 44, 18 through 20, the last three verses of the idolatry section. They know not, nor do they discern, for he, God, has shut their eyes, and they cannot see, and their hearts, so they cannot understand. No one considers. So you know what? We should pray. We should. We should pray. When we see someone like that, we should pray, Lord, open their eyes. Open their heart. Give me the heart of grace and forgiveness so I can just love them. That doesn't mean put yourself in a dangerous situation, guys. It just means have compassion. Because he has compassion. He is compassion. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and, and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? What are, the, what, are, what are these people being led by? You've all been led by it before. Sometimes you're tempted to be led by it today. They're being led by their belly. They're being led by their belly. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. So we're going back again. God says, I've done all these things for you. You have done nothing to earn them. All that you do is sin continuously. All I do is continue to give you grace. 
I am the powerful God of righteousness, defeats all your enemies. Why would you make these silly idols? And we're going to end today with, remember these things. O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. You are my servant, Hope Chapel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Like a mist. What makes the fog go away? When the sun rises. What makes our sins go away? When the sun, S-O-N, rose on that cross. Our sins were gone. I mean, we still commit sin, but the penalty of those sins was paid for. And now we have a God who stands before us, in between us and the Father, and intercedes on our behalf. God has made, made the sins of his people, both past, present, and future, like a mist. Can we acknowledge this? God says, Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. All of creation is in anticipation for this. There's a past grace, the present grace, and the future grace. God's coming back. Christ is going to come back riding on the clouds to redeem us, to take us to the land which he promised to go and prepare a place. He's returning. And you don't have to do anything. <laughs> You don't have to do a thing for it. It's already been done for us. So what? Do we sin all the more? By no means. But we get to live new life. We get to be disciples. We get to glorify God, this God who did all this for us. As a result of receiving God's grace, His mercy, kindness, forgiveness, for having received His compassion, all I want you guys to do is one thing. And I want you to practice doing this one thing often. I want you to do it when you lay down, do it when you rise, do it when you eat, do it when you're at a sporting event, do it when you're at the hospital, do it everywhere you go. Do this one thing. And it's all that God wants. You want to know one thing you get to do that is pleasing to the Lord? Here it is. And I want you to do it right now with me, okay? All I want you to do is take a deep breath and just say thank you. Will you do it with me? Thank you. That's it. He wants a heart of thanksgiving. That's it. 
He just wants us to say, thank you. (laughs) I mean, think about this. Jesus shows up, looks at you with his wounds on his hands and his side and his feet, and he says, my child, welcome. All he wants is what? Thank you. Thank you for doing this for us. Thank you for allowing me to get to worship, to no longer have to do anything. Thank you for allowing it. Thank you for dying on the cross on my behalf. Thank you for the good times and thank you for the bad. Thank you for the ups and the downs, the different directions I've gone. Thank you for the hard life you've allowed me to live so that when you called me from the grave, I would spring up with new life. Next to the flowing waters, I would spring up. So in closing, Kurt, thank you so much, brother. In closing, I want to read John 6 again. And then at the end of it, I want us all to say thank you. And thank you to the worship team. You absolutely helped me prepare my heart for today. Thank you. John 6.35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, there's that I, I will, said God. I am, said Jesus. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you, that you have seen me yet and yet, not, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Future grace. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Everybody say future grace. Future grace. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Future grace. Remember God's grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for displaying this grace to each of us today. Lord, I just pray that as we leave this place, the church will remember your graces, past, present, and future. Father, that we will see the world around us as desperate for your grace. That we will be reminded that when we were once lost, you showed your grace upon us, you opened our eyes so that we could see and let us cry out for those who can't. Because only you can open those eyes, but it is by the hearing of the word that they shall believe. And how shall they hear unless somebody preach? So, Father, let each of us as disciples of of your Son, Jesus Christ, go out and spread the good news that it was finished on the cross. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.